Grace to you and peace from the God who is our Father, and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. We consider together this morning our second lesson from chapter 12 of Revelation. In this lesson, the chief of the fallen angels is referred to as the great dragon, as the ancient serpent, the devil, and Satan. Each of these names tells us something about our enemy. He's identified as the one who leads the whole world astray. Maybe we think first of him as the tempter. That is his gospel, if you will. That sin is harmless, that it's desirable, that it is the best way and the right way for us to, to go through, through life. And succeeding at that is his delight, that he could separate us from God. But he can't prevent the fact that we will at times be confronted with the enormity of what we've done and the guilt of what we are. And there he switches on a dime from his gospel to his law. That the soul who sins deserves to die. To switch from saying that sin is absolutely harmless to saying there is nothing that can rescue you from your guilt and the punishment that you deserve. So the tempter becomes the accuser, telling us that we will forever be separated from God. Now, his accusations have the authority of God's law behind them. The soul that sins deserves to die, that is, to be separated from God. And the evidence of our life, which he can seem to throw up against us in endless detail, from the freshest to the oldest, that evidence is clear and undeniable. So he would say that we belong to him and we belong with him. And so the father of lies appears to have truth on his side. So how can we possibly oppose him? And here is the beauty and the worth of John's vision. He sets before us a spiritual reality that is even more glorious than what Elisha's servant was able to see as a result of Elisha's prayer for him. The Lord opened that servant's eyes to see beyond the chariots of the enemy, to see the horses and chariots of fire of the Lord covering the hillsides. That overwhelming force that was with him because the Lord had sent them. Our prayer this day is the Lord, the Lord would do for us just that. 
that he would open our eyes to see how secure we are under the protection of the angels who always see his face and know our Father's desires for our security. That powerful accuser, we know this thing about him, he has been hurled down. Note that we're told he has been hurled down. This is not something set in a distant future that might possibly happen or that we must wait to happen. It has happened already, decisively and unchangeably. Because the book of Revelation says so much about the very end of time, we tend to fall into thinking of it as talking only about the future, even when it's, in fact, talking about things that are presently and continually happening. Like the signs of Christ's return, wars, rumors of war, earthquake, famine. That's those riders, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, just describing it in a vivid pictorial way what's happening now. Because we're in Revelation chapter 12, it would seem like, well, we're more than halfway through the book. We must be into the distant future. But this chapter, in fact, describes events that took place at the time of the coming of Christ and of his ascension. The chapter begins with a great red dragon, that's Satan, who is trying to destroy the church. The woman with um, seven heads and with, with rather with ten crowns on, on her head. And the Lord protects his church, snatching the church up and taking it to a protected place within the wilderness. Now, John tells us then war broke out in heaven. Here the word heaven really refers to the sky. The angels and Satan had been cast out of God's presence after the fall. And at this point in time, they are bringing a battle against the angels in the sky, but they're hurled down. A war began, we're told, and just as quickly we see that the war is over. They, they never stood a chance. They were hurled down. Now, some would suggest that this is talking about the future, but really this took place at the time of Christ. Remember how he reacted when the 72 disciples returned from their mission to proclaim the gospel. They returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus' death on the cross was the promised decisive victory over the enemy that had deceived and defeated us. And that victory then is proclaimed in heaven with a loud voice because it is a victory that has changed everything. 
Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. In what way has our accuser been hurled down? The power of his accusation against us was the authority of the law that says the soul that sins must die. But Christ established the gospel. He came and he died our death. And Satan, Satan then is reduced to trying to accuse us before the very God who has declared us not guilty in his sight. There are, are many who would treat that kingdom of God, the glorious kingdom described in Revelation 20, that thousand-year reign, as something that will come into being in the future a place of peace and security, of security for believers because they've been removed from the tribulations and dangers of this world. But remember what Jesus' prayer for his disciples was in the upper room. My prayer, Father, is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. As we see in verse 11, those who triumph over Satan were those who did not let go of their Savior in the face of death. They triumphed over him by, or better, because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Notice how Christ's people triumph over the accuser. They triumph because of the blood of the Lamb, because of that once and for all sacrifice that has covered all their sin. They triumph over him because of the word of their testimony. In other words, because of the gospel its power, and its authority. Christ's kingdom is not a future thing, but a present reality. Already now we are, as Peter describes us, royal priests. That's our place in the the kingdom. John spoke of the present reality of this kingdom already in the very first chapter of Revelation. He refers to Jesus Christ as the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the king of kings, and he has a kingdom. In the brief doxology then that that follows, John describes Jesus as the one who loves us, the one who is continually loving us, the one who has freed us from our sins, an accomplished fact, a reality, and is the one who has made us to be 
a kingdom, and priests. The word to be isn't really there in the Greek. It might to some suggest, well, this is a potential. This is something down the line. He has made us a kingdom. He has made us priests. That, too, is a present and glorious reality. And we've been made this to serve our God and Father. And so to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Our comfort in this world is a comfort that is very closely tied to the comfort of the cross. That in a world where Christ appears defeated, powerless, absent, we have the confidence that he has established a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that, that he reigns, even though we can't see him, nor his angels who protect us, that we know that he will never leave us or forsake us. So since Satan has been hurled down, it's proclaimed in heaven, Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows his time is short. The accuser has been hurled down. Yet there are still things that he attempts to do. He still seeks to separate us from our Savior. But he has been bound by that great chain described in Revelation chapter 20. What is it that restrains him? Not a chain of iron or steel. It is the gospel that prevents him from deceiving the nations. You and I still have to deal with Satan's accusations. He will accuse us of what we have done. And it is kind of depressing at times to realize how old the memories are that he can throw back in our face as to our guilt. We have to take this enemy seriously. He prowls around looking to devour us but he has been restrained and is restrained by the gospel. When we're reminded of of our guilt from days past, from years and decades past, it is important that we take that guilt seriously. But when we find ourselves struggling with that sense of guilt that is very much unshakable and it crosses over into being kind of paralyzing we have to ask whose voice is that is it the voice of our our conscience or is it the voice of God's ape who starts with gospel but ends with with law is that consciousness of guilt serving God's purpose or is it at that point keeping us from doing what God has set us free, what God has redeemed us to do. Does it drive me to the cross? And if so, it is calling me then to freedom. Sometimes the accusations aren't just of what we've done, but they're 
accusations as to who we are. We consider our options in a situation, and there is this voice that reminds us, you know, who are you trying to kid? You know who you are. You know how you react when, when somebody is pressuring you or annoying you. You know how you react when you don't want to deal with a responsibility or a task. You know who you are. Why pretend to be any different? People who've fallen into addictions can struggle with the feelings that they try to break away from it, but again, their feelings say, no, this is who you, you are. It can be very, very powerful. That then is a good time to remember, remember your baptism. And this isn't wishful thinking. This isn't imagination. This is what God has to say about you in view of your baptism. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, you were buried with Christ in baptism. You deserve to die. And in your baptism, God connected you to the one death that covers it all. You were buried with Christ to be raised with Christ. And then in verse 11, Paul says, in the same way, in view of what God has done for you in your baptism, consider yourself not dead in sin, but dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Your baptism has given you a new identity. When Satan confronts you with who you were, that's not you anymore. The real you is dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's a serious battle. It can be a very painful and confusing battle, but in this battle, we're, we're not alone. I think perhaps we need, I need to, to recapture some of Luther's awareness of the spiritual world that we live in and the angels that surround us. In his, in his morning prayer, he commends himself to, to the angels. Let your holy angel be with me that the wicked foe may have no power over me. It's very comforting to know that there are angels who are powerful and many and swift it's very powerful and comforting also to know whom they serve. And we've got two answers to that. Who do those angels serve? Well, they serve our God and Father. But the writer to the Hebrews asks this question and implies the answer. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. Those guardian angels who always see the face of your Father in heaven serve you. Yes, our accuser has been hurled down. 
May our lives be a celebration of that glorious reality. Amen. Please rise. peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus.